So last week we were exploring the power and beauty of waking up out of the tyranny of our inner dialogue. How really the, the freedom is when we wake up from what I call the trance of thinking. And I'll begin with a, uh, one of my favorite uh, of Emerson's words. He says, within each of us is the soul of the whole. Within each of us is the soul of the whole. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. Within each one of us is the soul of the whole. The inquiry really is, what prevents us from realizing this? From living from that sense of that belonging and that sacredness that really is uh, running through and shining through each of these forms. You know, how come we forget? And the language I usually use is how come we get so identified with this story of a small self that's making his or way through the day and usually in some way a sense of oppressiveness with that. How come we forget? So last week I um, explored some of the ways of paying attention that help us to recognize we're lost in thought. As I described when uh, the Ajahn Buddha Dasa was asked to describe the world and that was his description, lost in thought. And I keep rediscovering for myself, it's like one of those ahas that just keeps rehappening how many moments, the huge swaths of moments that are spent in some way disconnected from the living reality and off in some idea of a future or a past but not with that vividness of being here. It's really challenging to, um, to wake up out of the stickiness of thinking to, to let go and really be here. We're very addicted to figuring things out. And um, one of the stories I tell here a lot, because I think it's so, it says it all, it's not just figuring things out in terms of working through daily stressors, it's in spiritual life, where it's like constantly have this idea of a self trying to be a better being or a better self and strategizing and, you know, the self-improvement projects. So this one story is of the, you know, of a Zen monk and a student says, so what happens after we die? And the Zen monk goes, oh, I don't know. And the, and the student gets kind of, takes umbrage and says, well, you know, I thought you were a Zen monk, a Roshi. And he said, I am, but not a dead one. <laughs> so, it's like we can't think our way to freedom. The freedom... Thoughts can point in certain ways. Thoughts can incline us. But it's only when we, it's, William James described it beautifully, it's when we wake up out of conceptual mind that we really touch the mystery. 
So another Zen picture has uh, two Zen monks sitting next to each other and one kind of turns his head and says, well, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? (laughs) (laughs) So even not thinking becomes this thing we're trying to do. So I just want to say that, that, you know, we get these instructions for meditation. Okay, sit, sit still, now relax. Just, you know, the word just, just relax, right. We're rigged to be tense, just relax. Just let the mind quiet. Yeah, right. You know, how easily does that happen? So the deal is that, and this is a little bit of review from last week, is that we're totally rigged to just the way the body secretes enzymes, the mind secretes thoughts. We're totally rigged to think a lot, that it's critical for surviving, it's critical for, for thriving, for communicating, and it's part of spiritual awakening too, that wholesome thoughts, a wise way of paying attention to thoughts, does incline us, does create an atmosphere that helps us remember what matters. You know, when we start class here, I, every week, invite you to reflect on what really matters. It's as one teacher said, the most important thing is remembering the most important thing. So that in any moment, and just right this moment, you say, well, what really matters? There's a bit of thinking that goes on, right? And if you think, oh, what really matters is being real, you know, or what really matters is that this heart is undefended, that there's an openness, or what really matters is being here and noticing, living the life fully, that those are thoughts but they get us more and more sincere and what happens is they almost like they're thoughts that help to catapult us into what really matters itself, into the presence. So thoughts can be what the Buddhists call, and it's kind of a dry term, but a skillful means. Often they're not. Thoughts are representations of reality and when we get hooked on thoughts we we basically forget about reality. When we're living our life in our ideas about things. Joseph Campbell said that religions, the religions are a way to really cover over the mystery. You know, we subscribe to all these ideas and theories and philosophies. And it takes us away from the radical presence, from the stillness and quietness where truth is experienced directly. Last week I talked about how many of our thoughts that we subscribe to are driven by fear. Because thoughts are are, are a mechanism for surviving. When there's fear in the body, the mind gets busy churning out thoughts on how to work our way out of a problem. How many moments of your day is there a kind of worry thought or a planning thought, a figuring out thought that has to do with some anxiety about things not working out? A lot of our thoughts have to do with what's wrong with us, what's going to go wrong. So let me 
remind you of this phrase from Gandhi that I find really useful. Your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. Now in case you're like me and you don't remember the chain, like you won't go home and you go, wait, da 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 in case that doesn't happen, all you need to remember is that the stories that we habitually are running about what's wrong with me, what's wrong with you, what's going to go wrong, create our life experience. They create our life experience. So we have to find out what are we believing in. That's the main, one of my main inquiries at any moment, whenever there's a stuck place, what story am I believing right now? Am I believing that I'm going to fail? Am I going to be believing that someone else is going to not like me? Often we believe, we're believing a story we're telling ourselves or we're believing what other people are telling us. One of my, this cartoon I saw has this gypsy um, was kind of reading a um, yeah, she's in a crystal ball and this guy's there and she's saying, you'll fall for anything. And his mental bubble's going, uncanny. <laughs> you know? And it's that way, it's like, if we don't, we're believing stories that other people have slapped on us and we believe our culture stories about how we should achieve and how we should look, how we should act. Even when this lost in thought is not negative, not fear-based. We are disconnected from the senses, from the vividness of what's here. Our gateway to freedom is this here-ness. Just feel right now, here-ness, what does that mean? And it takes a kind of listening and a relaxing a little because we tense against the moment when the body is tight, that's the body resisting the moment. So there's a listening and a relaxing. And the senses begin to open. You can feel what's here, your body. And you can almost sense the silence that's listening to the sound if you really get still. What happens when we're thinking? We pull away from this openness of our sensory experience. Check it out. When you find you're lost in thought, check it out. There's not a listening. There's not that openness. There's not a feeling in the body. Same thing happens when we're with each other. We're so busy planning our response or rehearsing or projecting or whatever. How much are we really listening? are tuning into who's here. There's not that quality of presence. In the most basic way, our busy minds, this, this incessant dialogue, blocks out the mystery, the mystery that's here. It blocks it out. 
It says, John O'Donohue put it, I love this. He says, we're so busy managing our life as to pull away from the mystery that's here. So in the thinking trance, we've pulled away from the wholeness and the aliveness. Now here's a description I find useful. It's as if we're in a movie theater, imagine this, and we're completely lost in a variety of shows. Romance, adventure films, nature films, comedies, tragedies, usually starring moi, ourselves, right? So this is us when we're in our trance of thinking. And then we hear the instruction, meditation, to turn and look at the source of the movies on the screen. So there's the thoughts, turn and look at the source of the movies on the screen and turning our heads for the first time, we recognize that all the movie images arise from a light source and a series of changing images projected by the light onto the screen. The light, clear and shining, is colored by the various forms on the film, yet its essential nature is pure and unchanging. I'm going to slow down here. So there's this trance of thinking and we're, we're in our thoughts and there's all these movies going on. And then if we pause and look back, where are the movies coming from? Who's thinking or projecting the movies? And there's this light source, this light of awareness that's pure and unchanging. So for most of us, we're in the movie theater, we're mostly in the movie, right? We're watching it. But there's sometimes gaps in the action. The show gets a bit slow and even boring. We might shift in our seats, notice the people eating popcorn around us, remember we're in a movie. In the same way, we can notice there are gaps between our thoughts, gaps in the whole sense of ourself. Instead of being lost in ideas and the problems in front of us, creating a whole sense of ourselves, there are moments when we step back, let go, and sense the space around our experience, that we relax. Now the space between thoughts, the gaps where we let go and are not identified with our thoughts and feelings and reactions happen all the time. These gaps happen all the time. We don't always notice them the gaps between thoughts. Chogyam Trungpa says that these gaps are extremely good news. That in this space between thoughts we're reminded of awareness. And when we notice them, we're reminded of the freedom that's possible in any moment. We all get glimmers. We have really busy minds and yet for all of us, there are times when there's these moments of, okay, stillness, quietness, touching peace. And that's when the soul of the whole, that, that light, that awareness is sensed. Moments of connectedness, of belonging, where we just settle and we love it. And yet, as we know, very quickly the self recongeals, the stories 
pop right back up and we get pulled in again. In fact, sometimes we get pulled in in a way we go, oh wow, that was a really cool experience. Now how did I do that? And how am I going to get that again? And I should go to a three-month retreat or maybe I'll go to Berman. You know, we go, we, and then we're off and running. It's a self trying to have an experience. But then there might be another moment where we'll hear the kind of waves of the crickets at nighttime. And it's a little cooler and we'll just feel the air and breathe and pause. Ah, oh, yeah, it's simple, right here again. And then we're off and running again. Mm, that was great, you know. So it goes on and off, and so we begin to notice how is it that we leave, and here's how we leave. That there's a constant flow of pleasant and unpleasant experience. And in any moment that there's pleasant experience, there is tremendous conditioning to tighten around it and want to make it continue and want to get more. And when it's unpleasant, there's tremendous conditioning to, instead of just opening to this moment, to push it away. And we spend a huge amount of our time trying to manage experience versus just letting go and letting be. The main way we try to manage experience? Thinking. We spend most of our time trying to control our life through our thoughts. It's called selfing sometimes in the kind of Buddhist jargon, that there's an idea of a self that's trying to navigate and trying to have more of the good stuff and less of the bad self. And there's an ongoing story starring self that's trying to make stuff happen. So let's look, we might be feeling great you know, just really open and at ease and somebody disagrees with us, right? They judge us or they criticize us. So we go from that here-ness back into the idea of a self that's not being agreed with, that's being dissed, that's being violated and we immediately flip into all the thoughts of how we're right. We really want to be right. Have you noticed that? That the self really wants to be right? I like the story about a little girl. She's talking to her teacher about whales. The teacher said it's physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it's a very large mammal, its throat's very small. The little girl stated that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible. The little girl said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. The teacher asked, what if Jonah went to hell? The little girl replied, then you ask him. <laughs> so that's mild compared to what happens between people that disagree about religion or politics or whatever. But so our mind starts going into why we're right. Or we face a challenging situation at work or in a relationship and we know it. We get addicted to obsessive thinking. As soon as fear arises, it flips into the thoughts becoming our tool for surviving. We're trying to control things. Even when the situation's neutral, now watch this, we're just washing dishes or going out to get the mail or on the way to the bank. 
our minds are churning. It's as if it's a free-floating kind of anxiety. Nothing's bad's happening right now, but I better keep on planning and remembering and scheming just in case. We're not comfortable with not thinking. How come? Thinking gives us a sense of controlling, knowing what's going to happen, reorienting. You know those moments right before, right when you wake up, but before you've kind of fixed into who you are and what the day's going to be? It's a floating without a kind of idea of a self. We don't rest with that so well. And when things are challenging, we just grab on to trying to make sense, figure out, get oriented. I was talking to a, a good friend a few days ago who's got a family member who's very, very sick. And he was describing how when the diagnosis first came, there's a huge amount of, or when the sickness was there, but without the diagnosis, a huge amount of fear, huge amount of fear. But when they got a diagnosis and were told, well, you can probably expect this, this, and this, it didn't matter that it wasn't great news. What mattered was a kind of a knowing. And as soon as there was some knowing of, oh, okay, so this is what it is, there was less anxiety. Now, again, it's part of our survival strategy to know about things, to gather information and orient ourselves. And we don't stop. We're constantly trying to fix on what's happening, what do we need to do, what's going to go wrong. It's what's called a control trip. We're on a control trip, all of us. And as long as we're controlling in any moment that you're trying to control by this is how it is, figuring out, defending, protecting, in those moments we're not able to be here experiencing what's right here and experiencing the awareness that's here, that's really what we are. We've left home. So what happens if we begin to practice waking up from the thoughts, from the controlling? What happens? Because what we find is it's the last thing we want to do. There's a reason why when you sit and meditate here that it's not easy to have the mind get quiet. The last thing we want to do is let go of our thinking. It's like one of the stories, again, one of those kind of Zen-like stories of the guy that's being chased by a tiger and he kind of goes over the edge of the cliff and he's holding a vine and the tiger's walking above and there's these craggy rocks below and he just yells out, God, God, help me! And then he hears a voice, Hello, yes? He says, God, is that you? Yes, it's me. Help me, I'll do anything! And so God just says, Okay, just let go. And the guy goes, is anyone else there? <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like anything but letting go. Because what happens if right now, if you just say, okay, come back here and let go of thoughts 
And initially you might sense a little bit of an arriving, a pause. And then just to keep letting go and keep letting go when they arise. Not pushing away, just re-arriving here. Here. And what we find is in this here-ness, there's a kind of groundlessness, a kind of vulnerability. It's like we want to, in some way, control it, get away from it. And yet the only way to awaken from that small sense of self to experience the soul of the whole is by staying right here, by not knowing. Now what motivates us, because it's much easier to be in a trance in some ways, what motivates us to keep not knowing, not riding the trains of the thoughts, what motivates us is awareness wants to realize itself. There is a natural longing in awareness to realize itself and to live that that luminosity, that wholeness. In some deep way we want to wake up more than we want the comfort of the trance or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be willing to dip into presence if there wasn't some place in us that wanted to be real more than in the story. So the direct pathway to the soul of the whole is this non-conceptual presence. It's that here-ness. And the practices are not to get rid of thoughts but to recognize and keep arriving again and again, to be willing to not know. It's not easy for us. In, in Buddhism it's sometimes described as beginner's mind. That right in this moment you can put aside all your assumptions about the spiritual path, all your stories about who you are or where you're going or what you're supposed to get from tonight or anything and let this moment, right this one, right here, be absolutely fresh, bare attention. Beginner's mind means there's no assumptions, there's no predictions. There's a story of a poor village priest who crosses the town square every day to go to the temple or the church and uh, one day a Cossack policeman who's seen him for all these decades crossing the town square he says, hey, where are you going, Dad? You know, and the father says, I don't know. And of course the police is kind of offended by this. You don't know. Every day you cross the same square, you go to the same church. What do you mean you don't know? And he, for his being, you know, he just takes, drags him off and puts him in jail. <laughs> And the priest looks at him and goes, you see, you don't know, <laughs> you know, where you're going. 
we don't know. We, it's kind of amazing that we walk around with some sense of certainty, purposefulness, like, okay, I know I'm going to do this and I know who I am and I know who you are and there's this kind of certainty and yet we really can't predict. We can't even grasp with any ideas this existence. We just can't. Do we know what love is, really? I mean, how do we grasp the particulars of existence, that existence exists, that there's these incredible colors in the sunset, or that people are so cruel, or the face of a flower, or the sound of a bird? How did the particularities happen in this way? Or there was a big bang and that in some ways of understanding it's just happening over and over again, moment by moment, this world just arising and dissolving. Can we really grasp with our minds this existence? Underneath our certainty, our ideas that we try to make sense of our lives with, there's this mystery. And our invitation is to be willing to step out of our ideas about how it is and inhabit that mystery. Because when we inhabit the mystery, we inhabit what we are, the soul of the whole. I'm going to read you a, a little story that really uh, touched me. I shared, I think, with this group maybe last year. Oh my God, David, no, cried Glenda when she saw the bright lights headed straight for their car. As the squeal of the tires struggling to grip the road became one with her own shriek of helpless terror, she knew that she had lost her husband forever. Moments before the car came crashing through their windshield, the couple had argued over something silly and had been sitting in resentful silence. They had had these little scuffles before, but unlike all their previous skirmishes, this one, this one there would be no opportunity to apologize and reconfirm their love. Three years after the accident, Glenda sat with me in a dimly lit hospital chapel. At her request, I had arranged a meeting between her and the young man whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart. The heart recipient and his mother were almost a half hour late for the meeting and I was ready to suggest that Gl to Glenda that we leave. The issue of the recipient's meeting donor families is a very sensitive one and I understood why the man may have changed his mind. As I s stood and took Glenda's hand, she said quietly, No, we have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him arrive about thirty minutes ago. I felt my husband's presence. Please wait with me. Glenda is a practicing family physician. She's well-versed in bioscience and, as I do, admires the rigor and healthy skepticism of modern science. Now, however, the power of something that transcends what science calls common sense was tugging at her heart. David's heart is here, she added. I can't believe I'm saying that to you, but I feel it. His recipient is here in the hospital. At that moment, the door opened and the young man and his mother were, walked hurriedly down the center of the chapel. Sorry we're late, said the young man with a heavy Spanish accent. We got here a half hour ago, but we couldn't find the chapel. After introductions and an awkward attempt at humor about a heart-to-heart -heart meeting with the young, when the young 
with the young wife and her husband's heart, the usually shy Glenda blurted out, this embarrasses me as much as it must embarrass you, but can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, I mean your heart? The young man looked at me and then his mother, put his hand to his chest and finally nodded his head. As Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand, and gently placed it against his naked chest. What happened next transcends our current view of the brain, body, heart, and mind. Glenda's hand began to tremble and tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand, hugged the young man to her chest, and all of us wiped tears from her eyes. Glenda and the young man sat down and silhouetted against the stained glass window of the chapel, held hands in silence. Speaking in her heavy Spanish accent, the young man's mother told me, my son uses that word, copacetic, all the time now. He never used it before he got his new heart, but after a surgery, it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. I didn't know what it meant. He said, everything was copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. Glenda overheard us, her eyes widened. She turned towards us and said, that word was our signal that everything is okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say that everything is copacetic. Our discussion about a magic word that seemed to reveal a code of the heart within him stimulated the young man to share story after story of changes he experienced following his transplant. Described by his mother as a former vegetarian and very health conscious, he said he now craves meat and fatty foods. A former lover of heavy metal music, he said he now loves 50s rock and roll. He reported recurrent dreams of bright lights coming straight for him. Glenda responded almost matter-of-factly that her husband loved meat, had played in a Motown rock and roll band while in medical school, and that she too dreams of the lights of that fateful night. It's a mystery, this inquiry, as to who we really are. What does it really mean to have a soul? That these forms come and go, and yet there's some consciousness or awareness that's timeless, different flavors, but timeless. There's a soul of the whole that lives through each of us. This is the poet Mary Oliver. She says, Still, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts, and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I am looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe that the imperfections are nothing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. We begin to touch the mystery as our minds quiet, as we don't believe so much the stories, the incessant inner dialogue quiets. So meditation helps it helps us to let go of the controlling, busy trance of thinking and it helps us to arrive in this changing flow of sensations 
and sounds and in the silent presence that's aware it helps us to come home again into this mystery so there's a few different steps in our practice here and we won't go through them in detail that really are the currents that carry us home as you'll notice and I really encourage you through the week to to practice with this we begin by waking up our senses right in this body listening feeling sensations feeling the breath establishing that hereness when there's that sense of an embodied presence it's easier to notice when we've drifted into trance not to fight the thoughts but just to notice them we notice and then just to re-arrive I sometimes call it re-mindfulness that we're remembering, reconnecting with that hereness which is really the gateway to the mystery so just take a moment we're just going to practice just a little bit more with arriving home the beginning of waking up is to just let the senses be open listening relaxing with the sensations in the body right now if it helps, if there's a place that's difficult just breathe with it, gently breathe with it in this presence, in this hereness there's just that changing flow, moment to moment and the awareness that knows because there's in our bodies, in our minds there's knots and tension and fears sometimes when we come into the hereness we more directly contact that vulnerability then the practice becomes really a courageous one of choosing to stay we need to stay with what's right here maybe it's physical discomfort right now you might just say, this too, this too if there's real trauma then it's quite healthy and compassionate not to dive into the trauma but so much of what's here in this body, in this moment we can be with and in fact, the very practice of just letting it be naturally opens us to space to aliveness what happens when you completely let this life be as it is right now?
You can listen to the words of Dana Fold. She says, trust the energy that courses through you. Trust and then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. Don't push anything away. Follow each sensation back to its source in vastness and pure presence. Emerge so new, so fresh, that you don't know who you are. Totally here, not resisting. Welcome in the season of monsoons. Be the bridge over the flooded river and the surging torrent underneath. Be unafraid of consummate wonder. Be the energy and blaze a trail across the clear night sky like lightning. Dare to be your own illumination. Continuing in presence, but opening your eyes if you'd like. The fruit of this practice of re-mindfulness, of staying, of opening to what's here, is that when we're not resisting the life, when we're not off in thought, the sense of a solid, separate self starts dissolving. Many of you might have heard in Buddhism that kind of the essence, my friend Jack Kornfield, many of you have read his book, probably Path with Heart, says when he first went to India, one of the masters there asked him the question, so, what's the essence of Buddhism? You know, kind of a challenge to a young, new, I mean, he's in his 20s. What's the essence of Buddhism? And Jack said, well, that there is no self to be found. It's a good response. And this guy, this master, just started laughing, doubled over laughing, goes, no self, no problem, no self, no problem, you know. And it's great because really, in those moments, in those moments of presence where our life isn't hitched to some fighting or resisting or proving or defending a self, there's freedom. There's vast space and there's the possibility of true love. When there's no hitch to a self that needs something or has to push something away, there's a great, vast, tender space of heart. Sri Narsargadatta, one of the non-dual teachers, um, describes it this way in terms of waking up out of a self-sense. He says, you need not correct yourself, only set right your idea of yourself. Learn to separate yourself from the image and the mirror. Keep on remembering, I'm neither the mind nor its ideas. Do it patiently and with conviction, and you will surely come to the direct vision of yourself as the source of being, awake, loving, eternal, all-embracing, all-pervading. You are the infinite focused in a body-mind, 
Now you see the form only. Try earnestly and you will come to see the infinite as your true home. So this was really the journey of the Buddha when he came under the Bodhi tree. He stopped. He stopped controlling, he stopped manipulating, he stopped defending, he stopped resisting, he stopped. He stopped pursuing the busyness of mind and he just was present. And in that presence he realized the mystery of true nature. In that quieting of the mind, when there wasn't the distraction of the inner dialogue, he opened into that space of awareness that really is our home. So this is what when we call the soul of the whole. It's this, the silence, the vastness, the empty awakeness that's always and already here, but it's obscured when we're in the trance of thinking. So we'll do a final little meditation, just kind of touching in. And as you kind of come sitting ready for it, just a sense that we all, each one of us here, are awakening Buddhas. That we get caught in identifying with a limited sense of self. And yet there's some longing in each of us to realize the soul of the whole to know our true home as awareness and love. When we realize that loving presence, the activities of these bodies and minds become an expression of it. So we don't try to save the world because we should, because it's a good thing to do, because we're a good person. We respond to suffering because this whole web of life is a part of our being. We're the soul of the whole. And our words and our expressions and our behaviors come out of that sense of belonging, out of that awareness. So again, as you've been doing tonight, let yourself come home into this moment. as we've been practicing, just listen to the sounds that are right here. Listen with your whole body. Listen to and feel this whole moment-to-moment experience. Instead of thoughts, look back into awareness. Where do the thoughts come from? Where does this movie go to? Who is thinking? Who is aware? Just relax back into the mystery.
into the silence that listens to sound. Into the vast space of wakefulness that's aware of this living world. This loving presence is closer than we imagine. Right here. It's beyond any thought more profound than we can imagine. It's easier to experience than we imagine. There's just a relaxing back into what we already are. And it's more wondrous. We are the soul of the whole. And this entire living world is an expression of that presence. These are the words of Rumi. One matter, one energy, one light, one light mind, endlessly emanating all things. One bright turning diamond, one, one, one. Ground yourself, strip yourself down to blind, loving silence. Stay there until you see you are gazing at the light with its own ageless eyes. May all beings be blessed to realize the loving presence that is our source. May all beings be blessed to live from that awareness. May there be peace on earth, peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.